0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary Shirley, and Lisa Fine is with me today as we go through another joint episode that kicks off our latest season after our standard two-week break. Before we went away, Lisa and I solicited your input to get questions for us to ask each other that would not be prepared in advance. And as someone who is very type A, this kind of thing makes me nervous. Um, And Lisa is probably less type A, but I I think she's a little... um, nervous too as to what could come up, but we have had a bit of a laugh about it. If if things go disastrously, um, we may be able to use it for our Halloween episode as well. So let me give you a little bit of a brief spoiler into that. As many of you know, we do do these quarterly joint episodes, um, typically when we come back from a break. And one that we have set up for The uh, very next season is an idea that came from friend of the podcast Diana Trevely, who suggested that for Halloween we do a horror story session. So let's get you thinking about your compliance horror stories, whether it be substantively at work, perhaps when you've been on business travel and it's gone awry, or during the job hunting process and you've dealt with some crackers who have um, made your life a little bit difficult through that hiring process. Anything else that's adjacent to these topics, feel free to keep them in mind and we'll let you know when we're ready to, to get collect your results for that one. So something fun to look forward to for the future, but now we have enough to look forward to for today. Lisa and I have the questions prepared and we're just going to go straight into them. First question for you, Lisa. Is it ever okay for an ethics and compliance investigator to employ deception when interviewing a subject? Now, this goes on for quite some time, so bear with me. Uh, I've worked at companies that allow very limited exceptions and others that say never. A common exception involves the subject who might figure out who the reporter is and then retaliate against them. As we seek to do everything and anything possible to prevent retaliation against reporters, the investigator might say to the subject during an interview um, where the internal reporter is known to the investigator, please make no effort to guess or otherwise identify the reporter. Doing so risks violating our anti-retaliation policy. The reporter may be anonymous or from outside the company it doesn't matter. The bottom line is you must refrain from trying to determine or conclude who it is. Of course, nothing in this example is a lie, but it is deceptive given that the investigator knows the report isn't external or anonymous. Certain countries may have laws or regulations that answer this question, but importantly, the standards of an ethics and compliance investigation, at least in the United States, are not the same as a government-led investigation. Also, many ethics and compliance investigators are not licensed attorneys, so there are no licensed professional restrictions to consider. So, do you think it's okay for an ethics and compliance investigator in rare and previously identified instances to deceive an interviewee when doing so likely could have a material effect on protecting a reporter from retaliation? There's a lot there. Uh, there is, there is. And so, so yeah, did, If you, I, I thought if you didn't have anything immediate, I could sort of summarize a little bit of, of, of some of it. But I mean, I, can, I can tell
0: you what my yep.
1: take is on what's
0: being mm-hmm. said here and my take on how to interpret that. Mm-hmm. I think the first interpret. point on it is the question is, if you're protecting your reporter, is it okay to either obfuscate or change, you know, give some additional facts um, and mm. to do something that might be considered deceptive in mm-hmm. as you, you know, as you go through the investigation. Um, I think that's the hard question to ask, to answer when you think about it from a global standpoint. And here's why I think there are situations where if somebody's going to be at risk of bodily harm or physical harm, or I'm thinking of, you know, women in countries where it takes a lot of courage to speak out. Mm-hmm. You, there's no other way to protect the safety of someone then to make sure that you are deliberately as general as you can be without completely lying. Mm-hmm. I don't think lying is ever a good idea, but mm-hmm. I'm not going to disclose to you whether this is internal, external, um, you know, who this is or what this is, because the concern is the allegation is really important. And I think what you really have to think about in those situations is how do you ask enough questions to be able to blur what may or may not be clear. Sometimes you can't, but I do think, I mean, I think for in the U S for example, there's people much better will understand retaliation or other things, but there are countries where you have a lot more cultural challenges and actual physical safety challenges. Mm. And in those situations, I do think it's okay to do what you can to, you know, make it something more blurry or more anonymous to the extent that you can um, without flat out lying, I mean, you don't want to say to somebody, this is an external reporter when it wasn't, mm-hmm. but you mm-hmm. can give categories or other things, at least in, in my opinion, because I think protecting the individual as well as protecting the investigation. Um, and the other thing that is a way to do that as well is make sure that you don't just investigate your, your subject of the investigation. It, it talk to everyone, including who may potentially be the reporter, mm-hmm. um, because I think that helps a lot um, for, um, you know, making sure that you can keep your anonymity um, going. So I don't know if that's the, I don't think there's a yes, no answer to this. I guess one of the disadvantages of lawyers and compliance is our glorified, it depends. But I do think you have to think about the safety of people first and foremost, and mm. also use that in your strategy for the investigation. Uh, make sure the whole team is interviewed. Make sure that including the person that raised it, somehow, so they can be in a common thing. So I think that would be my answer to that. Do you think I've covered that
1: adequately, Mary? I think you you have, and, and what I would perhaps give as my view, even though my view is unsolicited, um, is that in these circumstances, I don't necessarily see the example given as actually being deception. Um, so when you give an example, as, as was here, the example was, you know, I'm going to ask you not to guess. The person that has made the complaint maybe internal, maybe external, maybe anyone. Um, I think that's very different from saying um, it was an external person that made the complaint. That is a flat-out mm-hmm. lie and that is flat-out deception. In my opinion, it, it, and it would be, I think, easier if you used a stock standard um, explanation every time you led an interview to, for, for the purposes of, of this particular uh, reason to try and avoid people from um, guessing who the person is, or you know, thinking so narrowly that they accuse the wrong person. I think you're in a, a, a fairly okay position, um, is is my view. That saying, you know, it, it could be anyone. And an example that comes to mind for me that I've shared before, really early on when I worked um, for a, a government authority in New Zealand, I was an investigator receiving reports about breaches of the tenancy law. And when I I called and spoke with a landlord who'd been complained about and he started asking, you know, which of my tenants made this complaint and I obviously wasn't able to explain it. New Zealand's privacy law um, in particular was was critical um, at, at the time for this particular uh issue and so um i did not share who the complainant was and he was adamant and by the end of the call he said oh i bet i know exactly which tenants that is always the ones who you know create trouble and and always making a fuss what i happen to know um because i received the complaint is that it was actually other landlords who had seen Mm -hmm. undesirable behavior and decided to speak up against it and so i give that example sometimes and say it's quite common for us to be dead set on who we think is the person causing a a problem. Usually someone comes to mind and I, you know, I use the word causing a problem loosely because of course speaking up is not in and of itself causing a problem, but a person who's been complained about would say (laughs) that uh, that that causes a problem. So um, in in my mind, telling, telling a story or giving an example about how, you know, it's, You know, it could be absolutely anyone and, you know, don't just assume that it's going to be the first person that you think of if, you know, if someone is really harping on this, because a lot of the time it truly and genuinely isn't. So I probably spent way longer explaining that than necessary, but that's where I land on it. Yeah. And the one other thing that I, I
0: found, at least in my investigations and so of you, is that when I, I've seen people that are so much more concerned about who said something versus what the issue is. Yes! And sometimes I, I reflect <laughs> back on that. So I'm kind of like, yeah, I say, I think we need to focus on what the concern is rather mm-hmm. than the person. And that to me speaks a lot about generally people like that who are in leadership roles. And it, it is a, a, an important thing for me to think about in, is this person doing a good job? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, is there some validity? So, you know, if you're somebody who's an investigation, and you're more concerned about who told on you versus what the problem was,
1: mm-hmm. then
0: there's a whole other problem.
1: Great angle, um, Lisa. Yep. So with that, I'm
0: going to go to your first question, okay. which is, and even like what you were just talking about with an example with everything that you do all the time. How do you continue to learn in order to stay on top of things in your job?
1: Mm. Um, so the first thing I think is taking an attitude that I still have stuff to learn. Um, and and being very humble about that and understanding that even in the areas that I consider myself strong at, because obviously the areas that I don't have much knowledge or um, experience are clearly gap areas, but also even understanding the areas that I consider myself to have more experience in or to be naturally more adept at, that there's always stuff for me to learn from there. Um, and so when it comes to fulfilling that information, I have... M- Certainly not always worked in organisations which have professional development budget, and I'm a strong believer that you shouldn't let that stop you. Um, you know, we can resent these things for as long as we want, but that's not going to change the situation. So I'm a a big believer in um, reviewing blog posts, newsletters, um, articles on LinkedIn from others, and when I attend conferences, I must admit a big a big part of what draws my attention to going to conferences nowadays is making sure that I can support as many friends who are speaking as possible. Um, But another priority is making sure that I still get to attend sessions that sound really interesting to me and that I want to take a look at. And I think one of the things that it's important to keep in mind is if your job involves certain substantive subjects uh, you may think it's naturally that it's critical for you to stay up to date on those. But one thing I like to do as well is stay up to date in the areas that do not fall under my current portfolio. Um, one, for the very simple reason that I think we need to be challenged and it's good to be knowledgeable. Um, but two, the the job that you're currently in is not going to be your job, most likely, statistically speaking, um, for the... the the next several years. Um, So there are no longer lifers in companies like we used to see in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. You know, career people at at one company is is becoming increasingly rare. And so keeping in mind that, that my next role could require experience in an area that I don't work on currently Um, I keep in mind that I should be well-read generally, not just across compliance subjects, though that is critical, but also across sort of business development areas as well and understanding um, things that will help me improve as a manager, as a colleague, um, as a friend, whatever that may be. So I like to stay well-read, keep on top of things, and most importantly, be a voracious learner and understand that no matter how good I become at a certain area, there's always something more that can be added to the list of things to, to learn and absorb. That makes a lot of sense. Um, one other thing for me that
0: I think about in that topic is, is that the topics that kind of scare me mm-hmm. are things I need to go and learn more about outside of what I do every day. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I'm, you know, things about financial reporting or other things or you know mm-hmm. audit from a more financial, I'm, I joke that I went to law school to stay away from numbers. Um, yeah, me too. <laughs> but now I feel like I still learn about them. Um, so things like that. Sometimes it's something I'm like, I'm not interested in this. I think, well, why am I not interested? Is mm. it because it makes me nervous that I don't know enough?
1: Mm-hmm. And if that's
0: the answer for me, then I, I realize that's what I have to go out there and learn because I think to, to, to keep evolving, I need to get out of my comfort zone.
1: Yeah, that's a great test. Thanks for sharing that, Lisa. Another thing I want to ask you to share about is what is the biggest area related to your current role that you're curious about and why?
0: That's really an interesting question, and and, and I I can't believe I actually have an answer for this off the top of my head because (laughs) it's something I've been thinking about a lot. Mm -hmm. So thanks for whoever wrote that. Um, One of the things that I've been thinking a lot about lately and I've gotten more involved in is some of the political um, compliance and regulatory rules, whether it's pl- pay to play in different states, um, mm-hmm. how that filings, how of all that. It's something I was less involved with initially, which ironically, since I live in Washington, D.C., you'd think I'd know it or want to know it sooner. But this is an area which I, I find fascinating. How do you make sure that people are following the different requirements for different states? And this is a particularly U.S.-focused area. It is. And are gifts and hospitality different from one place to another? How do we make sure that you train your board members, even if they're global, that, you know, what political contributions, if any, are acceptable, whether it's from a company, from your family, what is the pack, you know, who has what responsibilities? I just think it's kind of a thorny area um, that mm. lately I've been interested in learning more about. And, um, we, you know, also as you, I think, partially, I guess, in, DC, in the D.C. office of Pearson with the go- government relations people for a couple of years uh, has kind of rubbed off on me that way. So that really is just one thing that I am finding myself more and more interested in and in, in learning about all the time, um, mm-hmm. which I also find fascinating because it doesn't have anything to do with the politics of any of it. It's the, co- the compliance side of it. So there's one for me.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. That's a particularly US thing. I can say from a foreigner perspective, many of us, when we when we learn about this practice in the US, we're just shocked and like, how how can they even have this regime? Um, so, yeah, different different strokes for different folks. What about you? Oh, in terms of that same question, sure why not? <laughs> is it is it what you meant? Yep. Oh, um, biggest area for my current role. I think so. The idea of us putting in place the culture of integrity um, dedicated function was supposed to be trailblazing in many respects. And so this year I focused a lot on getting uh, training ready, less, less, um, less focus on the culture of integrity piece, which I hope I'm going to have more time to turn to later this year. And so – right now, one of the things that um, has has come up a lot in sort of general discussions that I've been running for colleagues in a particular area of our business, um, and many of them have asked me, well, how do you know when we have a strong culture of integrity? How how can you measure it? And so there are a few things that I have in mind that I would like to, to do with that. But one of the things I'm curious about is what is there additionally that I've not thought of? So, how else can I help build out this function so that it can be something maybe that in the future other companies can look to as well and use as a template for their own purposes?
0: Okay. Um, I have the, I'll follow up with my next question for you. Okay. Um, if, if your ideal compliance leader was an animal, which animal and why?
1: If my ideal compliance leader
0: yeah,
1: with an, an animal. animal. So, leader being my boss, right? Is that kind of what do you? Think? I mean, or or someone who? I mean, I'm just
0: reading between the lines. Someone that you uh, that you would aspire to be, uh, that you would look for as the excellent, the perfect compliance leader.
1: Yeah, the if reason we're, what are an animal. <laughs> <laughs> the reason why you know these um, hot seat questions are really tough for me is that I know that as as human instinct when we first answer a question, we give kind of like an easy answer and we don't get to all the valuable stuff without really thinking on something usually. And so the cheap answer, which is the, you know, the first thing that comes to mind that's not necessarily going to add any value would be something dorky like, Oh, like an elephant, because, um, well, actually I was going to say, cause they're wise, but then I think an owl is more wise than an elephant. Elephant just has like an awesome memory. Um, and so I don't want to give a really superficial, lame answer. I want to think a little bit more carefully on this. I think maybe something... I mean, it's, it's a
0: hard one, to be fair, Mary. It's a hard well, one to figure out the most substantive answer for, you know,
1: in any event. But so I wouldn't stress about that. <laughs> it was... It was uncom- Is this a Jonathan Armstrong question by any chance? What do you think? I'm going to guess that this was the Jonathan Armstrong question for Mary Shirley. Yes, it was. Okay, right. So what I would say to this is maybe something like a lion who's the leader of the pride. And so someone who looks out for the others and knows that they have to be brave and strong for the good of a wider group. Um, I think I think that's it for now. In the middle of the night at 3 a.m., I'm going to think of a really clever answer for this one and I'll email Jonathan and uh, and let him know. You're going to add it to the show notes,
0: <laughs> but uh, I, I since I had this question, I thought about it and I had to have <laughs> no great answer to it just mm-hmm. for, for clarity's sake, but I did think about a zebra and, mm. or as the rest of the world they call them, a zebra because
1: zebra, yes, they
0: protect, yes. Um, when I was in South Africa, they explained that it was a, ze- a zebra, so I mm-hmm. kind of you know, but in any event, I like the idea. They sort of do their thing, but get involved when they have to protect what's going right and and going wrong. You know, they're Mm -hmm. not in the middle, but I feel like they observe and figure out what is, you know, the right behavior and protect who they need to and what they need to. Then I also thought because they have the black and white stripes, they're kind of like a referee. So that was the (laughs) best I could come up with.
1: (laughs) It's awesome. Um, And I have a fun, uh, I guess, fact. Um, In America, you have like the letter Z. In New Zealand, yes. we say Z, right? That, that's the letter. So a little bit different. Again, well, dif- different strokes. Again, yeah.
0: Well, when I when I was in South Africa, when the
1: oh, and I got
0: somebody was saying to me, "There's zebra," because you don't say Deborah is Debra. Deborah is Debra. So Deborah. So zebra is zebra. I'm like, okay. So <laughs> the name Deborah. Oh. You don't call her Debra.
1: I can see the logic of that, but then the the English language has like no logic whatsoever for pronunciation and convention. So I'm not sure that's the most compelling argument.
0: I wasn't sure either, but in any event,
1: we just probably for the first and only time, we'll be talking about zebras on this podcast. (laughs) Thank you, Jonathan Armstrong. Lisa, what are some some of the things you are researching right now? Could be personal, could be professional, could be vague, the person prompts. Okay. What am I
0: researching right now? Other than, you know, political contributions. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What am I researching? I am researching places to stay in Southern California. Mm. Um, I am for my personal life. I am researching, I'm always researching, you know, things related to training a dog, um, (laughs) shocking no one (laughs) being a single dog parent. I spend a lot of time researching that. And I, um, I spent a lot of time also in all seriousness post COVID kind of learning and trying to relearn how to kind of go out and have a real life um, mm-hmm. and balance with some of my more introspective tendencies in some ways. I'm, I'm a, I'm a social introvert. I love these conversations. I love being around people in ethics and compliance community, but I'm not like, I need to come home to relax, you know, to relax. So I'm, I've been looking, thinking a lot about different things like, you know, Skillness, self care, things like that in my personal life, in my professional life lately. Um, I like other than some of those things, I've really gone back to looking at certain things about how to best do investigations. Um, you know, just to, go, I always, you know, that's one of my sweet spots in involvement. But now that you know, between going from the Zoom world of investigations back to real world, hopefully, what can I do? What have I learned? What can I bring to the table from that? Um, and, you know, in terms of some other topics, I I've talked about it before, a little bit more about fraud and other financial type crimes and financial issues, because again, those scare me. Mm, mm,
1: so, same. So. Same.
0: All right. Now, now here's one for you. Was there a specific moment that you realized that GWIC was not just a podcast, but it was more of a community? And the moment that would be kind of the aha, that it was really more than just us you know, getting great guests every week or speaking to one another, but when it had evolved, do you have a specific moment in your mind?
1: Mm, I don't think so. I don't think I've had many work epiphanies, if I'm honest. Um, I think for, for me, it's kind of just felt like a, like home almost. It's been a very comfortable environment and things have just developed really nicely and at a really nice pace for us as well. I don't even remember the moment at which we, we realized that we had sort of more than five listeners, Lisa, Um I think that the, the time that shocked me the most was in relatively recent history, and it was when Tom Fox shared with us that we get over 2,000 people listening in per episode. Um, that that was a time that really hit home for me in terms of, oh my goodness, this is something bigger than, than we ever expected. Um, but in terms of the community side of things, in some respects, I always thought there was going to be community. And, and what I mean by that is when we first made the assumption that we'd have a few good friends who would politely listen and support us, I always knew we had that in respective community, that we always had people standing behind us and that even if we were a giant flop, um, that, that there were people who would make us feel like we hadn't been complete failures. So in that sense, I've always felt like you and I had community. We, at our, our very bare essence, we've always had each other in this with us. And we've had Tom Fox right from the beginning. We've had Matt Kelly supporting us and, and all of the women who stepped in really early on. I'm, I'm so grateful to our earliest speakers who before we even had a reputation or anything to show for, you know, there was no sort of example episode to send over. The people that stepped up and and stood beside us and said, absolutely. Your show has no listeners, no reputation, no nothing, no history, and I will support you. Um, It was in those moments, without me realising it, that that it was community as such, but I was always grateful for it. And so I guess I would summarise by saying I feel like the community we've had has always been with us, and it's just grown magnificently over um, the, the months that we've been doing this. And I'm, I'm grateful to each and every person who has either listened in and if you're not listening in, I'm so grateful to everyone who has stood by us and, and made us feel like we, we have that support.
0: Yeah. And the only other thing that, the thing that hit me and when I saw this question or I thought mm. about this was mm. the idea that I remember the time that somebody reached out to me to tell me about the relationship that they had built with either with the guest on the podcast mm. or reached out and had discussions completely separate from the podcast itself or mm. us and have built their own relationships from it. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's another part of it where I was like, this is not, you know, this, oh, is, yeah. this is more than a podcast people like. So that to me, I remember the first couple times that happened, I was just so
1: tickled. Yeah, so. I agree. That, that's a moment of, this is bigger than we are. And we're quite little. So. <laughs> it's five two over here (laughs) (laughs) same (laughs) if there was one thing you could change about the way compliance is perceived by people outside the profession what would it be
0: all right well that I think that I would want to change the perception that we're somehow just trying to you know, basically enforce regulations, even though we've moved forward and say no, and that we're all about the law and we're not human beings trying to build the business, Mm. that we are really trying to support ethical decision-making, that we are trying to make sure that the individuals that think we're trying to slow them down, we're actually trying to keep them out of trouble Mm. and that there is benefit, not just from a legal standpoint, but as an organization as a whole, that your reputation is being ethical um even more than the, in the compliance side, obviously, you know, you have to follow the law. I mean, if you don't think that anywhere, mm-hmm. that you're above the law, you have a different problem. Mm-hmm. But the idea that we're not trying to say no, we're trying to get you to the right place with yes mm-hmm. to protect you, the business, and actually improve the business, the organization, the nonprofit, and bring you to the place that you want to be to do the right things. That, mm-hmm. I, you know, it changed that perception of we're just, you know, you know, sitting there with a gavel deciding you can do this, you can't do this, um, but more of there's a whole strategic component that benefits us all.
1: Mm. I think mine's along a similar vein to you when I read this one and I the, the first thing that came to me was that we're perceived as a cost center and it actually – if I ever get the ability to name a compliance function in a company – or to rebrand it, I have half a mind to literally call it the revenue protection center or something like that. Um, because that part to me, like, Oh, look at compliance frittering away all the money that we work really hard to make. Um, that, that really isn't the full picture. So that, that would be it for me. Okay.
0: Um, so I guess it's up to me. It's back to me now for a question for you, right? Mm-hmm. So there's two parts to this question. Okay. Um, if you had an extra $10,000, and we'll just go with US dollars for this, and mm-hmm. had to spend it with the month, in, within the month. So one part is as your own, as your professional budget. What would you, if you had that extra spend, the other part is you personally. What mm-hmm. would be your
1: splurge? Um, what I would spend on professionally would be some kind of appreciation event for my team that also had an educational component. Um, I still haven't met my my team of my my current role in person. Not none of them. Um, and so, what I would do would be to to write a business case for you know because I'd want to document this <laughs> um, for what I would do to to provide moderate and reasonable appreciation, um, and then, of course, the agenda for the substantive part of it. But that would be first and foremost on the work side. Um, the silly thing that comes to mind for me um, would be shoes, and I do have two in my shopping cart um, at the moment on um, a website. But um, I think I've mentioned this before, but you know some of you may know that I was 24 years old when I I bought my apartment in New Zealand and um, being financially uh, prudent has always been important to me. It's something that my mother in particular taught me from a very, very young age. And it's something that's grown increasingly important to me at the point at which, and it was probably around about the same time that I bought my place, I I might never get married. I might never be in a situation where I'm double income, situation and I have to be able to rely on and depend on myself. Um, the Boston property market is insane and I say that as someone who has lived in both Singapore and Hong Kong. so you know that um, that's that's quite a big call for, for me to be making. What I would really like to be able to do with that 10,000 is throw it immediately onto my um, savings account with the aim to to buy property. So that was super dull, folks. I apologize. Well, no, at least, at least you talked about shoes. Yeah, well, I mean, that, shoes also. it was the first thing that came to mind, if I'm honest. Yeah. I mean, I immediately thought about where really splurging in Southern
0: California, but um, <laughs> mm. I'll roll with, uh, for that. But also, I mean, I think similar to you when it comes to something for my professional. Would be that we are, I haven't seen our my team in a long time, so mm. something like that as well, and also obviously some educational component and maybe some shoes.
1: As yeah, well. so. yeah, ab- absolutely. And and just to go back to that first one for a moment, you know, we've been and I, and I, I can't obviously give a lot of information on this, but we've been working under a monitorship for some time now. Our FCPA monitorship. It is tough. Um, it is it is hard going, and so I want my team. To know that they're appreciated, the extra work that they've had to put in um, really means a lot. And, you know, sometimes sometimes words are all that you have. And so I, I make sure that I do that frequently and generously, but still very sincerely. You don't want to be overly lavish with things so that they lose their meaning. But I did want to just mention that um, it, it, appreciation just for, for such great hard work for my team. Lisa your last question now and I think it's a tricky one but it may be that I don't understand the question very well. We often hear the importance of the birds and the bees but in the compliance world if you could only pick the attributes of one which would it be and why? This must be another Jonathan Armstrong question. hundred <laughs> percent this is a Jonathan Armstrong question And I'm so so
0: sorry. The birds and the the bees, I don't know if that translates to New Zealand. Um, It's basically, you know, teaching young kids about how children are born and things like that. So if you didn't know that, that's where the genesis of that comes from. Thank you very little. I did know that. And it's why I said sorry. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, with that, if if you want to be a bird Versus a bee. And I think part of the reason Jonathan has given me that question is because bees make honey. And for those of you who don't oh. know, that's the thing Jonathan jokes around with me regularly. And that mm-hmm. when I spent a lot of time implementing a, a global hotline at a, at an organization, all of the first reports coming from the UK were people fighting over someone's stealing someone else's honey off their desk for their tea. So while I was talking about how this oh. is such an important tool, um, generally, uh this is the first thing, you know, it was not, you know, it's kinda like, you know, sometimes you don't get that home run as your first, you know, com, you know, issue raised. But mm-hmm. it was a so the honey incident has been a, a running joke between us for a long time. Um, so that might be the bees. But having said that, I would much prefer if I had to choose one versus the other to be a bird. Mm-hmm. Um because of the attributes. You can get places quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can fly. You, many of them have some decent, you know, vision. They're very good caretakers of their, their, their children and their property. They build those nests. Mm. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of birds. I am clearly not an expert in the bee world either. Um, so, I mean, besides the honey, and I don't want to be, if we we're talking before about how in the compliance world, um, you know, we want to, an orga- something that works with organizations. And as, as a team, I'd rather be able to help people fly than sting them if they do the wrong thing.
1: Yeah, I've got to love that vindictiveness about bees. That if they, they, if they, you know, they really get angry with you, they would give up their last breath, basically. Well, you know, upon their last breath, they give up their life just to make sure that you're inconvenienced yeah. as they cark it. Um, so I have to, I don't quite like that about bees. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I think it's great for some roles. I just don't think if we're thinking about it, <laughs> what we do who for a living, who I aspire <laughs> to I be. Did is probably not right. a super vindictive little vixen. No, that that, that would yeah. be less than ideal, but I do find it hilarious.
0: <laughs> it is hilarious. It's just, I don't really think that I want my approach to be, if you disagree with me, I'll sting you. Although to be fair, there are times where probably the thought bubble in my head, and, and this is not just for work mm. life, where you're just like, really? You know, it's like you want to sort of mm. hit the gong or something. <laughs> like, mm. let's start over. I think that's normal. So there's mine. So the last one I have for you is probably... Not quite as kooky as that, but I, I actually kind of enjoyed answering. So um, <laughs> you're a global traveler. Um, you're all over the world. We know that you're a nomad in a lot of ways, and it's amazing. So when you get when you go home to New Zealand, what's your mm. must-have, the thing you think about for home, and when you want to go home, like that first mm-hmm. thing you think of after you've rested off the plane that you want that is your local thing?
1: Yeah, I'm guessing that um, we're not counting seeing friends and family here because that's the – you know the
0: no no the, we're the talking like the local, one. right the, the the food the drink
1: the experience mm, yeah you know what i found interesting when i when i'd lived in the us for some time and i didn't feel this when i visited from asia or the middle east was how clean food tasted when i went out to restaurants um and I I really quite like the food in the US there's you know a lot of things that I really enjoy but there must be something in the food in terms of the way that it's cooked or maybe hormones in meat or something I don't know but when I go back home now just feeling like it's more just very natural and I'm not going to use the word healthy because I think that's a bit of a misnomer really it's you know, if you're going to a restaurant, they're incentivized to make it delicious for you. It's probably not healthy. Um, and I, I don't really know any other way to describe it, but that it's clean. And so I crave that sort of um that that just kind of natural taste of things. Um and that that's probably not thematic. Um There are certain things that I jump on every time. There is a New Zealand candy called pineapple lumps, which are kind of like squishy pineapple-flavored things with chocolate on the outside. I always get those. There's um, biscuits, which are kind of like what you guys call cookies. Um, Biscuits are like thinner versions of cookies. So we have biscuits and cookies in our world. And I like a lot of – you know me, I've got a sweet tooth. I love sweet things generally. Mm-hmm. Um, Lamingtons are like a sponge cake with either chocolate or strawberry around the outside and coconut. Those types of things I get into um, every single time. And uh, New Zealand chocolate um, – Barbara Bela says that chocolate outside of the U.S. tastes better. She's like, it's got it's got more milk fat. Um, so I always make sure that I get some chocolate and, and bring some back for Team America in case uh, – in case it really is a, a difference. I far I I haven't noticed it so much myself, but it's nice to bring chocolate back to share with others. So definitely the sweet stuff and then the overall, just the, the taste of it is different in some way that I can't describe it that feels more natural to me.
0: I, I do think that particularly in bread and other things, I think the US has more sugar that they put in it or processing of some things. I don't know that for sure, but I know my friends, when I used to go to Switzerland a lot, always commented on that. And I, I noticed that too. For me living in the U.S. and being from the U.S., when I go home to Buffalo, New York, <laughs> there, there's a thing called roast beef on Kimmelweck or beef on Weck from a place called Anderson's. It's the best roast beef sandwich probably, I think, in the world. Mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. you know, there's nothing healthy about that. But <laughs> going to this place, that used to be a stand and they have curly fries and the roast mm. beef on Weck. I strongly recommend that for anybody who's in Buffalo. It's not expensive, and it's really a true
1: guilty pleasure. Can you explain? Yeah. So you're saying buffalo on what? No, it's a beef. It's a roast so, beef. Be, be. Sorry, uh, so so you're from Buffalo. Beef on what, sorry?
0: Weck. Kimmelweck is the name of the roll. Well, it's Kimmelweck is the full name of the roll. Kimmelweck. K-I-M-E-L, i look this up after. So in, in Buffalo, yeah, we just call it beef on weck. Uh, Beef
1: only. So, okay. And so for your next trip to buffalo for the weekend mary yes you got yet. it i'm on it um, and then just to go back to my little faux pas there, you, there there's no such thing as buffalo meat is there well i
0: you know there is bison meat and i think there oh. but that's not in buffalo usually it's kind of out west with with, it's kind of like venison
1: yeah i'm not sure i'd be uh, keen for that wild I, meat hmm. Mm. Yeah,
0: no, that's not part of this at all. This is, I mean, and obviously if you're a vegetarian or vegan, this is not going to be your Definitely first not. choice of a meal. But, but that beef but, sounds, that naughty beef sounds good. No, it's delicious. I'll just send you the link to my favorite place Thank just you. so you know afterwards. And so for anybody who's wondering about our, you know, secret workings of the quick podcast, this is pretty much how it goes. We'll end up with some links <laughs> for local delicacies.
1: <laughs> there are no secret workings. We kind of... uh Go off the cuff for a lot of things really (laughs) and and hope for feedback to make sure that we don't steer ourselves wildly off the track too much all right so it looks like lisa has some difficulties with the phone at the moment so as we come to the end of our episode i'm back oh there you are hello (laughs) I had a momentary technical difficulty, so (laughs) my apologies. Would you like to wrap us up,
0: Lisa? Sure. Um, Well, I guess with that, that's lots of technical difficulties, so now I'll wrap us up. Um, But thank you all so much for listening, listening, kicking off this quarter with us. We're so excited for the different guests that we have. We have surprises. um, We have some interesting discussions. Again, we always love getting feedback from you all, whether it's questions for us or guests or other things. Um, And thank you so much for spending some time with us today. And on behalf of Mary, me, and the Compliance Podcast Network, thanks so much and have a great day.
1: Thank you for sending through your questions, everyone. Take care.
0: Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.